Hello, and welcome to There Are Other Ways, conversations about living life a little differently. This is a podcast for people keen to explore less well-trodden paths in life. I'm Fiona Barrows, a business mentor who helps creatives make their online business work. Hello again, and welcome to the third episode of season three. Um, First of all, please don't worry, I recorded this interview um, back when I actually had a voice, so you won't have to listen to me croak the whole way through. Um, I'm so sorry that I sound so rubbish in this intro and outro. Um, It's actually the best my voice has sounded all week. Um, I'm recording this on uh, Sunday afternoon because I'd be waiting, hoping that I would get my voice back um, before recording it. Um, But yeah, so this is just what we're having to go with. Um, Right, on to this week's episode. And it is with the very lovely Jane Lindsay from Snap Dragon Life. Um, Jane and I have been Instagram friends for a little while now. Um, and I'm just really um, in awe of her business model, really, and how she won- runs Snap Dragon Life entirely in her own way. Um, we had such an interesting conversation and one that I've thought a great deal about since. Um, we spoke about her journey from a gallery curator to flower farmer to not on the high street maker and now um, to running a business which is built around a membership. We talk about why she decided to take the profit out of selling, the problem of novelty, the link between belonging and what we buy and how she really is a disruptor of retail. Um, quite a lot of my thoughts in this in our conversation were very sort of off the cuff I was sort of thinking as I was going um and I'm not 100% sure that I necessarily agree with everything that I say in this episode because of it um I think I'm still trying to sort of work out what I think about a lot of this um this stuff to do with sort of consumerism and the ethics of consumerism and buying and sustainability um so if you have any thoughts on anything that we talked about then please do get in touch whether you agree or disagree um, and let me know your thoughts Um, and in the meantime um, please enjoy this interview hi jane hi fiona Thank you so much for um, agreeing to speak to me on this very wet and wild day, or at least it is down here. Oh, no, it's glorious here in Scotland. We always have, so I think, the opposite weather from you, but I'm really excited to uh, have a chat. That's interesting that you have the opposite weather. Um, Yeah. yeah. Um, Well, enjoy it, because hopefully we'll have the sunshine back our end soon. Um, right, so um, to get started, for anyone who hasn't come across you before, would you mind just sort of introducing yourself and saying a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay. My name is Jane Lindsay, and I run a business called Snapdragon Life, which is centered around a kind of a membership community, a kind of club, um, which is about connecting to the seasons, um, sort of getting back in touch with nature and with creativity. Fantastic. Um, and you haven't always done that. Am I right in thinking that sort of um, you started off working in an art gallery? I did. I did. I started my working life as a curator in an art gallery at the University of Glasgow. I looked after their British art collection. Oh, wow. That sounds incredibly interesting. Um, and what, so what was working there like and what was it that sort of prompted you to sort of reevaluate things? Well, um, I, I, I was one of these children who worked really hard at school and that was my kind of thing. And then right the way through university and I got um, a good 
a history degree and I got to study in museum studies and then I got a job in museums and all of these things were really hard won and they looked like a very good kind of career ladder mm. it really kind of the, the sort of thing that you should do with mm. an art history degree and then when I actually got into the job I discovered I didn't really like working in an institution um I hate meetings and I hate reports and I hate red tape. Um, I'm not very good with office politics at all. Mm. So, you know, when you've got something that should be really, really good and it's not quite what you expected, but you think you should stick with it because you work really, really hard to get it. And everybody says it's a really good job. Mm. I did that for about eight years um, until the point that, I really, really, really didn't like it enough to leave. And by that time, I was hating it so much, I couldn't just move sideways into a similar job somewhere else. I had to kind of crash and burn and jump, really. Mm. It's, it sounds very, very similar to what I went through in terms of working in book publishing, which is such a um, competitive industry and you know I, I adore books it, sh- it should have been what I what I wanted to do um, but then I got into it and the reality was very very different to what I thought it would be and I had a similar sort of thing of thinking oh, you know I, I can't I don't just want to um, move sideways I've tried sort of like stepping out of this and I, I'm not I just need to sort of blast my way out essentially yeah and I think everybody goes oh what an interesting job what a wonderful job I'd love a job like that. And you feel a bit that maybe you're not making the most of it or that you should stay or whatever. Anyway, it took me far too long to to leave that job, really, looking back. And was there anything in particular that sort of got to you about it? Well, my office was in the basement. Um, When they built um, the sort of art gallery building, it the University of Glasgow, they forgot about um, staff offices. Maybe they thought they were going to be in another building, but eventually when they built them, they put them right in the basement along with the stores. So it meant that it was a really odd setup. There was no windows at all. Um, So you didn't have, there wasn't even kind of, you know, these ceiling lights that you sometimes get put into Mm. buildings. There was nothing. So in Glasgow in the winter, it's dark um, by the time you leave work. It's dark when you get to work. So there was no feeling of what was going on outside or you didn't even know what weather it was. Um, And that gradually kind of sapped my zest for life, I think. I just Mm. didn't know what was going on outside in seasons or nature or if it was raining. Um, it probably was, um, but but you know it was that kind of of, of thing, a, a complete disconnect, and it turned me into not just the being away from people, but that whole job turned me into somebody that I didn't recognise and I didn't like, and I just moaned the whole time for about I don't know why I'm still married actually, because for <laughs> the last two or three years I just moaned about that job the whole time and. Mm. Uh, I think that uh, you and my husband, he was just delighted that I wanted to leave it. That I finally gave him to that day. He'd have accepted any kind of job that I was wanting to do. And, and were you guys living in the centre of Glasgow at this time? 
Um, we had been living in the centre of Glasgow and then we moved out to a, a place called Old Kilpatrick, which is on the railway from Glasgow. So it was about maybe 15 minutes um, for me to get back into Glasgow train. But we did by that time have a small garden um, and Ewan was working out at, at Loch Lomond as a GP. So uh, it was sort of halfway between the two. And then when I gave up my job in Glasgow, it opened up the opportunity to move further out and into kind of the, the Trossachs, which is where we live now. Oh, amazing. And so what did you do after you um, quit your job? Right, I, I decided I would retrain in horticulture because the only thing that I knew was that I wanted to be outside. Mm -hmm. So I took an RHS qualification over in Edinburgh in horticulture. And then I decided that nobody was growing cut flowers. Okay. So that is what I should uh, do. So uh, for about eight years, I grew cut flowers for weddings and to sell at farmer's markets. Amazing. And was that... Uh, in your new place so where you moved to did that sort of become i don't know what you call it a flower farm yeah, it probably would be a flower farm though it's very very small i'm not sure about using farm because it was really an acre um yes a small holding very small small holding um we bought the house that we live in now because it had enough land to do that it had a pony paddock mm. space but before that i uh was allowed to use some land belonging to a farmer friend. Mm -hmm. And did you enjoy running the cut flower business? I did. I did. I mean, it's such a feel good business. Mm. Um, everybody loves to get flowers. And because I didn't buy any flowers, everything was grown here. The kind of couples that were getting married that I attracted were you know, they were the opposite of Bridezilla. Mm. They were people who were wanting something that was natural and eco and very seasonal. Um, so they were quite happy for me to just say, we will make you beautiful flower arrangements from the flowers that are in the patch at that time, rather than there being all this kind of pantones and color schemes and Hmm. matching the ribbons and all of this kind of nonsense so it was everybody was delightful um but my problem with the cut flowers and the reason that i no longer do that is that sort of around about 2005 2006 i became ill and at that point didn't know kind of what it was but it turned out to be an autoimmune disease but but what it meant was that the physical work and the stamina involved in growing cut flowers, I just wasn't able to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and I gradually was finding things that I could do, that I could do inside and sitting down <laughs> or in bed, um, rather than being out digging and planting and mm. uh, harvesting. Which is important because I think if you have an, an illness or um it's important that your business can sort of run when you're not feeling at your best because otherwise you sort of end up um sort of cutting off your income essentially every time you you go through a bad patch yes that's true and uh, growing flowers growing anything is mm. really hard work it is um 
<laughs> so if you're doing that day after day, and also the thing that I had set up is because I had everything at weekends, mm. um, you know, every week I would have something that I had to be at my peak performance. Mm. And I'm an introvert. So being on a market stall, talking to people, I love it, but I find it really, really tiring. So I would have to go to the markets with a lot of energy to start with. Mm. So if I had been making myself tired by doing really hard physical work all week, and then I would get to the markets and I would just be exhausted before I started. And it, it just, it became something that I dreaded rather than the highlight of the week. Mm. It's sort of, it's doubly draining. It's draining both physically and then also socially as well. Yes. Yeah. So what did you transition? So you said that you started doing things that you could do inside and um, from your bed sitting down. What, what were those things? I started to, so I was incredibly lucky. Um, Country Living magazine had done an article on migraine cut flowers. Mm. And then they were doing a, like a fair, like their spring fair, magazine spring fair thing in Glasgow. And I'd already done their flowers for previous fairs, but their garden, which was to be at the front of the fair, um, was somebody had to cancel that at sort of a few weeks' notice. So they called me up and they said, would you like that space? And you could, I had a vintage van at that point, a, a green French van. And they said, well, could you bring that and bring other stuff and just make it look nice and we'll give you the space for free. Wow. So, you know, I said, yes, absolutely. And then I thought, you know, this is March. I have no flowers. <laughs> <laughs> so what else could I take? So I, I just, I'd always sewn. Um, so I just started doing freehand machine embroidery, like drawing with a sewing machine. And I made up enough stuff to take and fill this stand. And that was kind of the, the start of that side of the business. Was it, were you running it through your own website or through Etsy or through another? None of these things existed. I was on a blogger blog, ah. um, which I think I must have started around about 2000. Um, which is when my youngest daughter was born. Um, you know, you've, got, you've got all that kind of like being up at night and things. And I would faff about on my blogger blog, um, which was a horrible, ugly blog. Didn't have any way of taking money. Um, people would send me checks through the post um, for things. It was, it was a completely different world. I mean, given that it's only 20 years ago. Um, and now we have all of this instant connection mm. and a social media, which is based around shopping a lot. Mm. Um, then it was just, yeah, you wrote your post, you uploaded your horrible photos and uh, people would send you checks. It's, it's so, it, you're right, it's so interesting. So as soon as I said that, I, I hadn't kind of thought about the timeline of everything and how recent all those, um, all those sort of platforms are. But in a way you were probably one of the first sort of online businesses in that sense. Yes, I mean, there was a lot of women starting around about that time. Um, mm. There are a lot of women who are now in their early 50s who I think because of that um, wanting to do things differently when you have children, yeah, that you step back from what was probably a, a, a very responsible, active career 
and for nine months um, you have this gap and I think that that allows a lot of women to just reevaluate things and I still have a lot of friends who started their businesses which they still have mm. when their children were infants um, and those children are all now at university. Mm. And how was, was that business successful? That's the duration of it. It was. And I got picked up by Holly Tucker gave me a call one day from oh, Northern wow. High Street. Now, she must be a very, very persuasive woman because I never, ever sign up to anything on the phone. Um, but she offered me this spot on Northern High Street, um, which was just beginning. And I took that up. And that was really the beginning of online business sales mm. um, because they were, they were brilliantly set up. They, they did all of the making it look nice, yeah. which tech was not my forte um, and all of the marketing and the payment and all of these kind of things. They made it very, very easy to have uh, an online presence that looked professional. Mm. And how long were you running that for? Um, that ran until, well, in, in some form, it ran until January this year, but I was involved with it until 2017. Mm -hmm. And what, what sort of happened then? Why did you sort of decide to step away from it? Hmm. Well, we'd sold our 100,000th order on Norton High Street, Impressive. and we had a bit of a celebration with that and I should have been really really pleased because that was one of the targets that I had set myself but instead I I couldn't get over the feeling that so much of that was headed for landfill mm. um, and then when I I'd done wholesale for a while so I've probably made you know 400,000 things and that although they're lovely things and you know, there's nothing wrong with them. It, that I didn't want that to be my life's work, just making all of these, you know, personalized embroidery mirrors or um, cushions or, or whatever it was. And I remember vividly driving to a garden center. It was snowy here. And I was driving to buy some cactus because I needed to do a photo shoot where it pretended it was high summer because it was going to be teacher's gifts. And um, thinking, you know, this is just wrong. I don't want to do this anymore. So by the time I got back, I decided that I was either going to close the business down completely because mm. I'm a bit of a draft queen like that, or I would step back from that not on the high street side, the kind of that retail marketing side and start something else because by this time you know my team was very very good they could keep that going without me and I had this idea that over a year we would phase from one to the other and I started a membership which was my main thing was I wanted to take the profit away from selling things I would still sell things but I would take the profit out of them um why, does that, does that why was sense? that yes it does but why why was that so important to you to do um because 
My natural instinct is to scale a business. Mm. Um, and the way to scale a business that has the profit in the sales is to push the sales. And I didn't want to do that anymore. Um, I, I didn't want to be persuading people to buy things. Um, that, that, makes, that makes complete sense. And is it, and I, I'm guessing as, was this sort of, because I'm guessing this sort of the timeline that you're talking about was sort of when the sort of environmental impact of stuff was sort of becoming more and more, um, we were all becoming more and more aware of it, I guess. Yes, I think that the past five years have completely changed the way that I see the world, just gradually, mm. bit by bit by bit. And I'm sure that that will continue, that I will suddenly start seeing things and go, oh, actually, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want that in my life. I would rather do something in a different way. Um, and I certainly don't think that I would have made that decision 10 years ago. Mm. I would have thought, well, I am you know, a small business and I do things in the most environmentally friendly way I can. And you know, I'm a very nice person and all of these kinds of things. And it was only then in 2017 that I thought, actually, that selling isn't what I'm here for. That's not the kind of business I want. What was the sort of response with the people that you worked with and the people around you to that decision? Mm. Um <laughs> <laughs> I think that people find it very difficult to understand why I changed the business. I mean, I think that my family completely get that. And to some extent, my, my team that I worked with, they knew th that some things I was happy with and some things I really wasn't. And what happens is if you are selling things in a shop, and particularly if you have staff, um, whose you know mortgages were reliant on you. You go with what sells, mm. and what sells isn't always what you're wanting to make or design or anything. And I was never just never a strong enough shopkeeper to not say, "Oh well, actually, this is selling. We could just do this in another color or bigger or you know whatever it was." So it's completely my fault that I got into the pickle of selling things that I didn't want to sell. But then I, I, I did step back. But the your original question is, what do people think? I think that the people that I know who I don't know particularly well find mm. it very, very peculiar that I would leave what was a very um, successful business when measured by turnover or whatever and move to something that they don't really understand what I'm doing. Mm. And because I, th I think what you're getting at is something that I think quite a lot of um, small makers struggle with, I think, and a lot of um, people who make stuff is that, you know, there is obviously things need to be made better and more ethically and more environmentally soundly. But the truth is, as well, is that less things need to be made um, yes. sort of full stop. And I think that that is the juxtaposition I think quite a few people do struggle with. Yes, I think that they do, but 
people still want to make a living and often they still want to make the things. Mm. Um, and obviously it's a good thing that those things are being made, but it, 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 is, it does sometimes just cut, it is still more stuff that, as you say, eventually ends up in a landfill. Yes. I, ha- I, I managed to stop myself from blaming not in the high street there. I'm getting better. <laughs> it's, I, I think it I think it comes it, it it's a bigger it's consumerism and capitalism it, essentially at the heart of all of this and that that's as you said the sort of the thing of like growing growth is good growing is good more stuff is good that sort of mentality that mm-hmm. is at the heart of pretty much every business and is integral to our understanding of business is what's at fault here. Yes, though I do wonder when it actually became a problem because I don't think that it was more than 60 years ago. I agree. I think it's it's greed, isn't it? It's because, I mean, obviously things have been, have been made for... A long long time but there has been an acceleration I guess in the last 20 years or so yeah you you've moved from there being two like fashion cycles a year and then it went to mm. four which is at least still seasonal mm. um, and now it's every couple of weeks mm. and I think it's also that it's become not about the, the actual things anymore it's that I think back to sort of when you would buy something because you really needed it or you really wanted it but I think now there are so many other reasons why people buy stuff it's you know so much is about sort of keeping up appearances and Instagram and being cool and always having sort of like the latest item that it's not I just about the that, thing anymore yeah I do think the novelty is a great problem I realized mm. Um, during lockdown that I had not read a book that wasn't new for about six months so every book that I was buying I was buying it because it was just out Mm. now there are so many books that I would want to read that I didn't never get around to reading but somehow because they're not new I had been discounting them on my list it's it's really interesting you mention that because I've got I I've got a lot of books I have bought that I haven't read um, that sort of I read I'll buy sort of four books and read three of them but that other one will just sort of sit on my shelves and I sort of made a mental note a sort of a commitment I guess to sort of for every new book I read to read one of those ones that's already on my shelf yeah because somehow they become less attractive just so- because they're already on your shelf when actually their value is actually more because you've already bought them yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, so it's, why, what is this why why do we have this inbuilt quest for novelty and then the 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 luster wears off really quickly and you buy something and then a few weeks later it already feels old yes rather than well, sort of buying- that somebody has got something that looks like a better newer version and that becomes the one that you want Hmm. I mean, maybe it's just about there is always something newer and shinier out there. 
Yeah. Uh, but but why is that? Because it would be very easy to change the the value to something that is, you know, the, the value is in something being treasured or considered or whatever, rather than being new. Mm. I saw a, a quote somewhere that was, um, don't buy something unless you would be prepared to mend it. Oh, that's really good. And I thought that was a very good filter to put things through. Are, are they going to be good enough for you to think, all right, I'm going to treasure that and put in some effort or some time or some money into keeping it going? Or would I just put it in the bin? Mm. Does this have more than sort of, you know, does this have a lifespan that I'm, that I'm dedicated, that I, that I want to ex, expect, expand? Yeah. Um, and I see that as well with um, sort of the seasons. Instagram is full at the moment of everybody wanting to fast forward into autumn because this is I've noticed well, we're, that. In, we're, in, we're in August as I speak to you. Um, and I love autumn, but we're kind of on the pre-autumn <laughs> period. And I know that as soon as we get to September, people will be talking about Christmas and things. And it's this kind of like rushing through rather than sitting where you are and noticing mm. where you are and uh, and taking the time to really appreciate it because autumn is coming like it's, it go, it's going to arrive you know that's a good thing about the seasons yeah. they do come round. um but yes we have this wonderful period where it's still really warm at night and you've got mm. you've still got the swallows and the house martins and the bats and that wonderful august light mm. before it starts getting really too dark um to to see uh the sun it's just it's a lovely time of year i just think we should sit in it and notice what's here mm. and not sort of rush to put your woolly jumper on and then get very hot and sweaty yes yeah um, because of it i've been thinking about this a lot in relation to food recently and how because obviously having an allotment has really sort of um taught me a lot about the seasonality of fruit and vegetables and how short those seasons really are and I've been thinking a lot about how I think I eat seasonally but actually I don't in the sense that there's still stuff that I eat out of season all year round and not locally as well so tomatoes and um bananas and um you know lots of things and thinking that actually I'm denying myself the pleasure of really appreciating and enjoying the first tomatoes of the season or the first new potatoes because yes. i've been gorgeous i've been eating them for all year round yes what i find quite interesting is that because there is more um knowledge about seasonal eating now which i think is fantastic there is also a market for just pre-seasonal eating where there is all of the you know like imported asparagus comes in just before you would get mm. homegrown asparagus because people have that hunger for it and they can't wait till the proper season. They can't wait another couple of weeks. Yes. Until they get it. And then, but then what's so ridiculous about that is that the asparagus that comes in will have been flowing and will have lost a lot of its taste and won't be anywhere near as good and, as the asparagus. And by the time by the time they get the UK grown asparagus, they might be fed up with asparagus. <laughs> you know, it's not, as you're saying, it's not that same in the moment appreciation mm. that you would get, but you just have to wait a little bit longer. 
Maybe it's Amazon Prime. I think I think that our I think that our patience has got a lot shorter. I think that our like we're just so used to having everything delivered to our doors so quickly that any sort of waiting feels odd and uncomfortable. Yeah, I was speaking to a woman who has just set up a, a wonderful eco fabric shop in Glasgow, oh, which is called Born. And at the moment, as she sort of like goes into the business, she's still working full time elsewhere. So she had said that she was just going to dispatch orders three days a week. Mm. But she was really, really worried about that, that people would feel that that wasn't good enough that they somehow needed their organic cotton jersey tomorrow rather mm. than you know on thursday and i think what has done i mean I, I don't think that that is actually an issue i only dispatch things twice a week now um but there's obviously something has gone into our brain in the last what four or five years that makes us feel that we should be able to get things tomorrow mm. Or same day if you're in London. Um, yeah. Which actually we don't need. No, we don't. It's, it's not like it's medicine or something. It, you know, it's, I think that's the thing. And I actually, um, over the summer, I ordered a um, lovely jumpsuit from a linen company in Lithuania. And they make everything to order, which means that they don't have any waste. So it's a fantastic mm -hmm. business model in terms of um, uh in the environment and so I so I put my order in and it was sort of six I think six to eight weeks before I got the jumpsuit and I and I thought at the time I was like I can't remember the last time but then I was thinking that's the amount of time it takes to make something yes how long it, it takes to make something it's not you know and that's how you do it if you don't want to have waste or clothes that end up being um you know that end up flooding um the uh the charity shops or if worse being burnt or being shipped abroad um yes i've noticed a lot of companies going down to really short runs which i think is a fantastic way of mm. reducing waste but it does mean that they sell out um and we, of, we don't like that <laughs> and people don't like that i think um, i see quite a lot of shops opening every sort of three months or so as well now Yes. Um, I think quite a lot of pottery businesses do it. Yeah. Um, and again, people don't like it, but then really there'll be another opening along in three months. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's, I, I think that, that there is something has happened in our brains that has led us to get used to this immediate gratification mm. rather than stepping back and thinking, does it really matter if it arrives a week on Tuesday rather than tomorrow? And also, you know, that is, I think that, that is, you know, I think, and it comes back to what I said, that it, obviously how stuff is made is important, but it is, it's more than that. It's not just enough to make stuff um, ethically and sustainably. It, you also have to make less of it. And that's yeah. a very, you know, and that's what it boils down to. And we have to buy less. It, you know, it's the people who suddenly decide they're going to be ethical and buy an entire new wardrobe from, um, you know, from small ethical labels, which is, is it, when at the end of the day, the most environmentally sustainable 
thing is, is what they already have. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a polyester that they already have in their wardrobe. Um, um, but but you know that doesn't look. It doesn't send the right message on social mm. media. Yeah. Whereas having the the right coffee pourer or the you know the right linen dress or whatever it happens to be, it sends a message about your personal brand. Mm. Um, whereas we haven't somehow got the confidence to say, actually, I bought this three years ago. I know it's not ethically right. I know that it's made of plastic, but I can continue to wear it because that's the only thing I can do to prolong the life of this object that I now wish I probably hadn't bought, but there you go. But it, it um, exists. It's in the world. I just have to make the most of it now. Yeah. Um, but yes, no, I, I've noticed that a lot that people get it. it it's why a lot of people don't like minimalism because so much minimalism is is really turned into throwing everything out and getting a few very aesthetically pleasing things instead, yeah. um, which isn't solving the problem at all, particularly as you might then get fed up with minimalism and start buying more and more things. And then you're just buying more. <laughs> it, it, I, think, I think this is the thing, it's the same thing with all sort of, movements is you sort of look at it and on the outside you think great and then you get into it and it's actually interrogating it and think well is this actually getting to the root of the problem or is this just making us all feel better yeah or i'm not even sure that it's making us feel better i think it makes us feel as though we belong to something mm. that that belonging is bizarrely to do with possessions in a way that the people who belong to that group would say that possessions have nothing to do with belonging i mean i think that if you interrogated people who are kind of like simple living seasonal living kind of instagram people they would say oh no possessions what you have is nothing to do with being part of this movement yet somehow mm. consumerism has crept in and it does become very much what have you got i know that if i post a picture that has any objects in it my dms are just where did you get that where did you buy that where's that from yeah um and i know that i'm not it's not that i've got an amazingly stylish it's just that this is how people connect mm -hmm. by that idea of the shop the shopping the consuming I wonder, and I'm just sort of thinking out loud here, is what you said that people, are people buying things because they want to, sh they want to belong and that perhaps a shift is that we've all stopped belonging in the same way as we once did to sort of the places. Like I think we're all a lot more rootless than we once were. And maybe that feeling of not feeling like we belong means that we are then now looking to belong by buying the right stuff it may well be i think i certainly belong to a very different community than my parents would have for example mm. um it's much more eclectic much more international community than theirs but it's also very very visual mm. because there are so many people that i speak to every day that i you know i might have met in real life but i might not have they may just be people that i knew 
through Instagram. And that's, it is a proper connection, but it's primarily has come about through a curated visual connection. Whereas my parents' friends are, it's a very local connection, mm-hmm. but it, it's real time and it's probably more talky than visual. And I wonder whether lockdown has shifted any of that, because I think especially in sort of the first few weeks and months of lockdown, when lockdown was quite strict everywhere, I think we all sort of became much more aware of the people who are around us and close to us physically. Yes. Um, and I was lucky that I, you know, I live in a town that is very community minded anyway, and I knew my neighbours very well. But I think we definitely came to sort of rely on each other in a way that our parents probably would have relied on their neighbours a lot more. Yes, I think that that's right. I mean, I I live on a single track farm road. There's maybe five other houses on it. But in that first month of lockdown, everybody was wa- out walking in the evening. That's where, you know, everybody mm. took their their walk in the evening. And it was like sort of a continental city, you know, with people taking the air. And yes, um, and, you know, that's that's worn off now. But um, it was really, really interesting. I did see neighbours, even, you know, when I have so few neighbours, much more than mm. I would have normally. Yeah, I was very lucky in that I live in a building of flats and there's sort of six other flats and we have a communal lawn outside and we all would sort of and for me living alone it was an absolute lifesaver because if it hadn't been for them I really wouldn't have seen anyone Mm. Um, but the lawn was big enough that we could all sort of socially distance and sort of sit and chat Um, and yeah and I think I I think especially in those sort of first I felt very much part of my local community my hyper local community in a way that I don't think I had done before. Yes. And and I don't want to sort of like sort of get get down on visual things because what people are creating is a really beautiful visual representation of their ideal. Mm. But I don't think that that's necessarily how we always see it. Um, and what I notice about community events, you know, when you've, when you've got sort of like a, a community meal and everybody's bringing things and everything's on mismatched, not like mismatched fancy country living-y kind of plates, but mismatched. Yeah. It's, it's been in the cupboard and I thought I'd bring it along here because it's might get broken kind of plates and paper plates and dinosaur plates and and things all put together in a way that is very mismatched in a community way but not curated Mm. and I think that's what is missing in some way the that I had certainly become very very tuned into a curated set Whereas actually what I take joy in is a completely community idea where Mm. nobody's bothering about whether the colors go together or does that make sense? It, it, it really, it really does. And I think it, it ties in with something that I think we, that I struggle with on Instagram a lot is the disconnect 
between I, I guess it's that disconnect between what people are showing and what people are saying um that it's that people are saying that this is important and that this is what matters but they're showing something very different yes yes i get that 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 often they make the caption is very true mm. and the picture is very filtered mm. but also i just one of the things that sometimes i come away from instagram feeling is i sometimes think where's the joy like mm. i just sometimes i look at all the everything that feels very curated and i just sort of feel i don't know i, I just I, sometimes i just sort of feel that the joy is sort of being eked out of things in the sort of pursuit of something else one thing that I did, because I, I, I had exactly that feeling. It was after Christmas and people had been photographing their Christmas dinners. And you know when, if you want to take a photo of a table setting that looks like a table setting, you have to squash all of the crockery together. Otherwise, it just looks really weird in the oh, perspective. Somehow. Didn't know that. So, yeah. So, uh, but people have been taking these beautiful photos of their Christmas meals, and I was just thinking, well, actually, you've had to move all of your plates. <laughs> so, so anyway, that New Year, what I did was I, I unfollowed all of the people with beautiful feeds, which sounds really mean, and I just followed people who are in my community or friends that I have, um, members of my club, that kind of thing, and it completely changed my feed because. What, it was as though we had gone back to the beginning of Instagram, which was that joy. Mm. And it was the, this is what I've seen in my life that brings me joy. Mm. So, you know, it's animals and flowers and gardens and food, but not the photo taken away and, you know, edited, which is, of course, what I do because I have a business Instagram. Um, mm. But it, it suddenly became something where it was people's, real lives and what mattered to them in a very immediate way mm. I think I think that's the difficulty is that I think that as you said like you have a business account I have a mm. business account the, the blurring between personal and business has meant that the personal has become more businessy in the same way that the businessy has become more personal which I think is a very good thing it's had the opposite effect as well. Yes. Um, I would say I have nothing personal. Really, I mean, nothing like from my home life mm. that is personal on my Instagram. I mean, my children, very rarely there. My husband is never there. Um, I take my photos and I'm usually a couple of days ahead of posting them it's a very it's very much like my website on stories however everything is there mm. because that's a different thing and everything's unfiltered and it the photo gets taken and put up so i see my stories as being my personal thing that talks a bit about business but equally it may be taken from my bed mm but my grid is very much about business, but may mention some personal things. And, and so go, and so what, how does your business now run? 
it's a membership <laughs> but I, I have a membership club mm-hmm. and that's called studio club and people pay me per month to be a part of that mm-hmm. and for that you get an e-course which it's either typically it's either gardening or nature notes or creativity the one this month has been about decorative mending so there's been five weeks of a, a mini e-course taking you through how to do decorative mending that kind of thing mm. um and then everything on the w- website has a member's price and a non-member's price so mm-hmm. it means that if members wanting to do natural dyeing which we did a natural dyeing course and they want supplies they can get them at pretty much wholesale price um which means that if you are somebody who is wanting to try all these things and hasn't got the bits already at home, because I am very much a, if you've already got this at home, you do not need to buy it person. Mm-hmm. Um, they can buy the supplies from me, but I don't put any profit into those supplies. So I mm-hmm. don't have, it doesn't matter to me whether people buy them or not. Mm-hmm. So um, the profit all comes from the um, members. Yes. Members fees. That's the profit. And how do you find that running that business? I really like it. One thing that was very interesting is that you know, back 2000, early 2000s, I wrote this blog mm. and it was a really ugly blog. And it was largely about starting a cut flower business um, and living here. And I kind of neglected that quite a lot. Um, for 10 years maybe but the in the first 100 people that joined my membership 60 of them I recognized as people I had known all that time wow now I don't know them personally sometimes I might have met them at maybe country living fair or something like that but they are people who were following that story Mm. and then they were quite happy to just pick up the story um, you know 2017 Mm. Um, and I love that I just really love that and I am incredibly lucky that all of the people who join up are just really lovely people Mm. Um, because I do know that sometimes memberships can be very very tricky yeah and people can be they they can kind of expect that they have you all the time Mm. um but I have never had a problem with anybody. Everybody is just really great people. Mm. I mean, I think that's incredible. I, mean, I love that that's such a long sales process. It is, it is. Get, get, so, get sort of all, 20 years later, bam, you've got a yeah. sale. <laughs> yeah. But it's fantastic. That, and I think that shows that, you know, that I think people will go with you as you sort of change and develop and grow and try new ideas. I think if people really buy into you and who you are and what you stand for you know they will they will come along with you yeah it is yes i mean it, it does take slow marketing to its extreme i think <laughs> very slow marketing but it's 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 fantastic that you have um that they have stayed with you for so long i think yeah yeah um but i think that people connect with people hmm. um and that's that's all I have ever had. I, the business has always been me, mm. you know, so it's not like I'm 
a faceless kind of, I've never tried to pretend that we're a really big business and very, very slick. I am what you get. And that's a bit kind of just me. Mm. Um, but I think people connect to that. And if they connect to that in one guise, like green cut flowers, then they'll connect to another one. Mm. And what is it that you, you sort of say that your business is essentially about encouraging people to slow down and really appreciate life and nature and so is it that the sort of the um the courses and the products are sort of ways for them to do that yeah um all of the courses are either creative things like the decorative mending natural dyeing or they are seasonal so growing vegetables growing cut flowers that kind of thing they tend to be really small aspects of things mm. so uh, you know I, I did a course on about growing sweet peas for example and that was the whole thing because I used to grow lots of sweet peas for weddings um, and what I'm interested in is people succeeding mm. so just trying something small and managing it and getting a result and then if they want to go on and do you know, become a cut flower grower, that's fantastic. And I will always, you know, help. But I would rather have 50 people grow sweet peas for the first time and actually get them to flower properly than, you know, 200 people buy a pack of seeds from me. I'm much more about not hand-holding, but making sure that people are able to do things, keeping it simple. So many things get overcomplicated in life. I think that's um, also. I think it's being, people being able to do things is is what keeps them coming back and exploring more because you get that sort of sense of accomplishment. Yeah, that things that things are not scary and mm. for other people, um, and that so many things are really really simple, but you might need to know two or three facts before you start. Mm. Um, so just to, I, I, we, I've just looked at the time. We have, we've gone over quite a lot, but, um, so just to, <laughs> we got talking and I just suddenly looked, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> um, but just to sort of begin to wrap things up, what for you is the hardest thing about living life a little differently? I think it's people not understanding what I do. Hmm. Um, I think or really being bothered about that. Women who have their own businesses often, um, particularly I think if they have children, there is the assumption that it's maybe a hobby mm. and that really it's kind of on the side and kind of thing. And that used to bother me when I had what was quite a big business. You know, I was employing several people, really good turnover. But because of that, I could kind of shrug it off and be, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's great to be underestimated. But now, because the business is, is so odd in its structure, so novel in its structure, um, my ego struggles whenever I get that. So what do you do kind of question. Mm -hmm. I, I see. I think there's, oh, there's so there's so much there that I agree with, and this sort of 
idea that that sort of the women-run businesses aren't important and don't matter and aren't sort of contributing when you know they they really are um and there's so much creativity in them like you know yours is a very creative business model um that is obviously really really working for you yeah um you know i i have a friend who uh described me as a disruptor of retail which i thought was quite ridiculous but whenever i get one of these questions i do think well I should really just say I'm disrupting retail. I, th- I think you should. I think I might, I'll name the podcast episode that. <laughs> Jane Lindsay, disruptor of Nothing. retail. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what for you is the best part of living life a little differently? Um, just being able to do whatever I want. Um, the One of the wonderful things about running a membership club where people have, they've kind of signed up without me saying, this is what we're going to be doing over the next year. Mm. And they trust that whatever the monthly theme is, will be something that is at worst interesting and at best something that they actually really want to get involved with and take further. So Mm. that means that I can just follow whatever it is that I am passionate about at that particular time. So I got into natural dyeing just Mm. because it was something that I fancied having a go at about a year ago now. So I was able to do that as one of the courses. And and that was brilliant because it meant I had to actually think down exactly how do you do things and how do you simplify it so that people can do it at home Mm. and look at things like solar dyeing, which I, I hadn't done before I was actually writing the course, that kind of thing. The, it keeps it really, really interesting for me mm. to explore new things. You just get to follow your curiosity. Yeah. Which is amazing. Um, Jane, thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, that was so interesting. Um, I think your business model is just incredible. And um, yeah, and I, I, think, I think you are a disruptor of retail. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. Jane is opening membership to the Studio Club on October the 1st, which is this Wednesday, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out. Um, So if you're interested in becoming a member, then please do keep an eye on her website and Instagram then. It's www.snapdragonlife.com and at snapdragon.life on Instagram. I will be back next Monday with another conversation about living life a little differently. So please do listen then. In the meantime, I'd love if you could rate, review and subscribe to this podcast and perhaps follow me over on Instagram as well. I'm at F Barrows. If you have any thoughts on this interview or the podcast in general, then please do send me an email. You can find my address on my website, www.fiennabarrows.com. Right, I'm off to drink a big mug of hot lemon and honey. (laughs) Thank you again so much for listening. Take care.